Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your amazing word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired this word, will inspire us. Um, we know that there's the twofold work. There's the inspiration which went into the word in the first place, but there has to be the uh, revelation to us of both its meaning and its implication. That's what we're praying for this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, these past weeks when I've finished going through a series, I've uh, had to obviously decide from one week to the next uh, what to speak on. Because some people always did that. Spurgeon never went through a series. He always preached uh, a different text each week, uh, not, not a cons consecutive one. Uh, and many preachers do that. Uh, for many years, I suppose, I've tended to do series. Um, the other day, Mike asked me to speak on the closing uh, words that we use on the service, the words from Ephesians. Uh, but I had no doubt whatsoever about this. Oh, well, <laughs> I, mean, I didn't have any doubt about that, Michael. <laughs> Excellent to add. Um, I just wanted, in case that was the implication, um, I absolutely felt that was the right thing to do. But I absolutely, with equal certainty, feel what the right thing to do this day is read and look at Psalm 126. What are these songs of ascents that they used to um, say when they were going up to up the hill to Jerusalem for the festivals? Psalm 126. If you want a, a combination of simplicity and profundity, you've got it here. In these few verses. Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, this is one of those psalms which we really do not know what prompted its composition. Um, the Older versions and some of the new ones too tend to link it to the exile. Remember, the people of Israel were sent into exile because of uh, their unbelief, mainly because of their idolatry, really, for other reasons, but that was the main reason. And that's why it was so significant. They were sent to Babylon, which is where all idolatry came from. There's an irony in that um, for 70 years. And so the captivity is often used when the Lord turned the captivity of Zion. We were like those who dream. Um, but it doesn't actually necessarily mean that. Um, the phrase simply means a turning. When the Lord turned our turnings, 
or the turning to Zion. And um, in a way, uh, it gives us, well, we would have perfect freedom if it does refer to the exile to apply it to our situation because the Old Testament is written for that purpose as well as for history. But but actually, uh, it, it, it's both general and incredibly focused in particular at the same time, which is why I say it's a mixture of simplicity and profundity. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, I'm very glad that this translation, the ESV, has gone for that version, that translation, the fortunes of, uh, because that's the general phrase. Um, let me just give you a few parallels to that, um, where, you know, it doesn't mean captivity, it means fortunes. If you turn back, you don't have to follow it, but if you want to, Psalm 14, you find the same phrase with the same meaning. Psalm 14, where it's the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and they all turned aside. It's one of the most uh, relevant psalms to our condition. Um, atheism plus uh, depravity of behavior. Well, the last verse of Psalm 14 is this. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Same phrase. The word literally means turning. So... It's turning the turning. And in this case, Israel had turned away. And God was turning them back or had turned them back. And then the phrase is um, also in Job. That gives a bit more of a flavor to it as well. If you look in the 42nd chapter of Job, obviously the Job comes before the Psalms. Book of Job. You know, there was um, a Puritan preacher, Joseph Carroll, who spent 40 years preaching through the book of Job. There you go. <laughs> you imagine that. So what's he preaching about next Sunday? Oh, oh, Job. And what did he preach about last Sunday? Oh, Job. And what's he going to preach about next year? Well, the Lord tarries Job. Anyway. Job, 40 2 and verse 10. Same phrase. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Now, if you remember, Job really did have everything turned upside down. I mean, he was, he was pretty good. I mean, he was doing well. Family, finance, influence, everything. And uh, it was all taken away from him. Satan was given permission to test him. And everything collapsed. Except his life was spared. And that of his wife as well. And he had these guys come along and try and help him. Job's comforters. I think we always have to give him credit for one thing. <laughs> the Lord told them off at the end for their sort of glib theology. They did sit for a week in silence with him, which was quite an achievement and psychologically very helpful. Um, so we, they, they weren't all bad. 
to sit with someone for a week because they're sorrowful is quite a commitment. Quite a commitment of friendship. <laughs> but then, of course, they started with all their wonderful lessons for Job. And he knew that those lessons were irrelevant. Because he hadn't done the things they said. But and Job, God was actually rather cross with them. But he was also cross with Job because Job had, um, you know, looked at things humanly as well. And God stirred himself up, didn't he? And how did he answer Job? He talked about creation. <laughs> Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Anyway, if you look at the uh, 42nd chapter of Job, I'll just turn back to it because I've just closed, closed it off. Um, you'll find in verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, which he prayed when he prayed for his friends. So there you go. So Job had everything turned the wrong way around. It wasn't his fault. It came upon him. It can be your fault, but in this case, it wasn't. And God turned it back again much more gloriously than it was turned in the first place. He restored his fortunes. And a truly surprising um, uh, use of this is in the 16th chapter of Ezekiel. Now, I don't know whether you're feeling out something through your Bibles this morning, but uh, if you thumb on a few more pages, the prophet Ezekiel, you'll see something really surprising. Very long chapter 16 of Ezekiel. Talking about Jerusalem, talking about Samaria, and talking about Sodom. The infamous Sodom, and portraying them as three sisters who turned away from the true God. And in verse 53, Ezekiel 16, verse 53, I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst. Now, how can Sodom be restored? It's all part of the salt-covered Dead Sea area. I mean, it was devastated. It was um, destroying. Remember, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt during the uh, raining down of sulfur and salt and whatever it was from heaven. Brimstone, fire and brimstone, I should say. But if you look further into the book of Ezekiel, what do you find? You find the same thing as you read in the book of Zechariah. The river is going to open up the Jordan and flow through the Dead Sea. I've told you before, um, um, uh, what's his name? Um, <laughs> excuse me, I'm um, It was a mocker hanger He's got a friend who actually went to the Israeli authorities and he asked them to buy a license for fishing in the Dead Sea. Clifford Hill, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> if you know that, if you've been in the Dead Sea, I've been in the Dead Sea, floating there. It's, it, because the Jordan flows into it and doesn't flow out, it's so full of. Every form of 
of uh, salt and chemical you can imagine. I mean, not harmful chemicals, but, but um, completely, you, you could just float in it without doing anything, no effort. But it's going to open up. And people are going to be fishing there one day. So this guy goes to the Israeli government and buys their fishing rights. I think they thought he was forbidden with nutter. Well, that they gave <laughs> he was giving them some money, so they took the money. Um, well, there you are. That's later in the book of Ezekiel. And that really is restoring the fortunes of, of Sodom, isn't it? But for that to happen. So there you go. So that gives a bit of background. So we don't know exactly what uh, is referring referred to here, but in one sense it doesn't really matter because it was very bad reversal. Terrible things that happened to Zion. It could be the, the exile. I'm not saying it's not the exile because they did come back. But um, it's, and of course, they, in a way, they were like those who dream when they came back. And of course, remember when they laid the foundation stones of the new temple, uh, they, there, were, there was weeping and, and, and lamentation as well as rejoicing. And you couldn't tell the difference because so much weeping for what had been and so much that joy for what um, was going to come with a new temple. But whatever it was, whatever it was, it was a reversal of their fortunes. In other words, things had turned right against them. And then God had turned it back. He turned the turning. And when that happened, they were like those who dream. That's good dreams, not nightmares. Our mouth was filled with laughter. And our tongue was shouts of joy. And this was so spectacular that the nations said, the Lord has done great things for them. You know, this wasn't done in the corner. This was something that uh, other nations saw. And then the affirmation, this was on the uh, Apples of Gold calendar the other day. It was part of the reason that I realized it was the thing to preach on. But, I mean, I'd already decided on it, really. Um, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So that's the history. That's the history, whatever it is. It could be the cap, it could be the exile and coming back of it, but it doesn't necessarily be that, as I've shown you. It could be some big uh tragedy had befallen the nation and God had reversed it. And in such a spectacular way that they themselves were filled with laughter. Their mouth was filled with laughter and their tongue with shouts of joy. And the nation said the Lord's done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Now, it is not hard to make that equivalence to our nation. To kind of draw a parallel. Some of you may well know that famous painting. I forget who the uh, artist was now. But of a Zulu chief. Who came to Queen Victoria. And um, asked her. What was the secret. Of Britain's greatness. And she went. And got a Bible. And gave it to him. 
Now, Great Britain wasn't called great because it was great. It was called great because it was in contrast to Little Britain, which is Brittany, over the other side of the channel. But nonetheless, there was a greatness about this nation. And it came the way of that painting. It was the word of God. The word of God affected this nation more than any other nation in Europe, even Germany, where, of course, the Reformation started. Um, at the end of the 16th century, you know, um, let's say 1599, therefore, there were Bibles in England. And they weren't lying on a shelf doing nothing. They were studied, devoured, believed, and applied. And I remember reading a book. Uh, it really was published at the time of the um, uh, 400th anniversary of the publication of the King James Version, so 2011. And it said, because of the knowledge the English had of this book, it was the most best educated country in Europe. And you know, <laughs> the irony is that that's still the case where that's happened. But of course, the reason why, it's not simply because it tells you all things about God, about creation, about the fall, about redemption, and about the future. That's true. I mean, it's the only historical account uh, of like creation and the flood that we have. And we've got a lot of other pagan ones that are not historical, but this is the historical one. But that's not the only thing. What this does is teach you how to think. Now, very, very, very few people realize that science, modern science, came from studying the Bible. In fact, they tend to think that the Bible is against science. Well, I mean, no greater ignorance than that could possibly... Now, anyone who does that simply has not got a clue how science came about. Science did not exist before the Reformation when the Bible was rediscovered. Technology existed. Amazing lots of technology in the ancient world. And philosophy, loads of that, natural history, but not science. Well, that made reference to um, you know, COVID vaccines. You wouldn't, the, the ancient Greeks couldn't have discovered ancient uh, COVID vaccines. The methodology of science came directly from the Reformation, from the fact that the world was created by wisdom and therefore you could study it rationally and experiment and test it. That's what, that's what science, how it works. So it came from here. So therefore, where people actually have the Bible, they can think straight. If you haven't got it, you don't think straight, which is why you get incredible, fanciful stuff published in the name of science, put over on the media, stuff is complete rubbish, completely, without any foundation whatsoever. And yet people believe it. Do you know, there's a program coming on the BBC, I have seen the trailer, about water, the molecule that made us. Have you seen the advert for that? I don't know if the program's on. What an absurd title. In fact, you know, because they found traces of water on Mars, I think there might be life. Why? How does water lead to life? It doesn't. 
You can't have life without water, not life that we know anyway. But the idea it leads to it is complete, to say that science, of course, is complete nonsense. I mean, that is nursery uh, class logic. And that's what runs so many programs on the BBC or in the media and so on. Water does not produce life. So why can this stuff be put on a supposedly responsible channel like the BBC? Because people want to believe the stuff. And they don't want to believe the only truth, which was this we discovered at the Reformation, that God creates life. Hence, once we've turned away from the Bible, which happened really in the 18th century, it's happened a long time, We've now ended up in absolutely ridiculous pagan philosophies of parallel universes and all sorts of stuff. Complete. We are, we are now, for the first time though, and praise the Lord for this, we actually now know. Not simply that Darwinism was never science, well it never was, I mean that's, that's obvious for anyone who knows anything about what science is. But there's no way that uh, Anything moves upwards. Everything moves downwards. Loss of information. There's no way that anything can work the other way. Well, simply can't. Simply because all information uh, is language in a code, and that has needs a mind. So the Bible says that creation was completed and then cursed. Absolutely, totally fits the world around us. That's what's so incredible about people who are learned and intelligent who have not a clue what they're talking about when they talk about these things. That's why back in, I think it was 2007, uh, the New Scientist public had a whole um, series, uh, one edition. It was, it was um, devoted to creationism. And the, the argument was that never debate creationists because they always win. And the reason why they win is because creationists, good ones, know why they believe in creation and why they, why, what other people believe about evolution. Whereas most evolutionists have not a clue why they believe what they believe. Now, we've turned. Whatever, whatever has caused this, Trace it back to the checking out the Puritans in the 1662 or whatever. Time of the Enlightenment, supposedly in the 18th century, we turned from God. Now, Queen Victoria could still say in the middle of the 19th century, this was the secret of England's greatness, and that's true. But of course, the damage had been done by that time. And now we are where we are. When God sent, he sent revivals. And when he sent revivals, we've been glad. He did it in the Puritans. He did it under Wesley and Whitfield. He did it in 1859, not in, this, not in England, though. We published Charles Darwin's book instead. He did it in uh, Wales in 1859 and in 1904, and of course, in the Isle of Lewis in um, 1949. Boy, was there joy. Ooh. Incredible joy when God sends revival. There was a revival in the United States, actually, in 1858 as well. Because Ireland, at that time. 
Our mouth is filled with tongues of joy, songs of joy. Now, so what about now, though? You see, that's only half the psalm, isn't it? The psalm wasn't saying it's like that now. He was saying it was like that. So what about now? Well, the second half of the psalm is a prayer. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. That's the south, deep south, where it's very dry. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes forth weeping, bringing seed for sowing, will come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you see there are two things there? There's the sovereign work of God without any part of ours being involved in it at all. That's the waters in the Negev. And then there's the labour bit of us going out, or the person going out and sowing seed in tears. Both, both are necessary. Both are part of God's plan. See, when down the south there of, of the country, the water can, with a heavy rain, can absolutely inundate it, and that which is barren can be blooming with uh, grasses and flowers in no time. And God can do that in a culture, in a country, in a church, in a nation, in a family. So praise the Lord for that. So that's all right then. Well, yes, except the psalm doesn't end with that. It also talks about things that we're called to do. To sow in tears and to reap with shouts of joy. So this second bit is not just God pouring out the blessing on the ground and you know the ground springing up and being fantastically fruitful and all that. It's actually targeted work, but with tears, with tears. So you actually go out and sow the seed. You actually go out and share the gospel. You actually go out with sharing your own heart. You actually go out with um, a sense of, 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 of great tragedy in your own life, maybe. Whatever. Anyway, with tears. But you also do the reaping. When it's God's time, when it's God's time to pour out the water, like the streams in the Negev, then the harvester, the uh, reaper, rather the sower, will also be the reaper. Because it's the same person who goes out, at least in this man's prayer, sowing in tears, who reaps with shouts of joy. He goes out weeping to joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And here we are. And this is where we are in our nation. So God has got to turn our turning. And we'll see this. But our turning is still there. We've turned away. And we've lost our fortunes. Because we rejected God and turned to folly and foolish thinking. As a nation. And we teach our children folly. As a nation. And we put other stuff on the media, which is folly. And so people cannot think. 
And very few people actually get their teeth into reading the scriptures and learning how to think properly. But some do, praise the Lord. But let me tell you, when God moves, there'll be such a turning back that you would never believe. In fact, it's just in Habakkuk, doesn't it? You'd never believe if someone told you. And uh, that's quoted in the New Testament. Who quotes that? And that's where we are. We are there, friends. But we have to go and keep sowing in tears, but we will reap with shouts of joy. The stuff that people believe is not only false, but we now know it's proven to be false. I mentioned the other day Professor Sanford's book, Genetic Entropy. And the whole idea of the evolutionary thinking, which is a religious thinking, and has taken over. Just like the Greek vases I told you about last week, <laughs> all that stuff. That was all, it's all manufactured, that was, that whole philosophy, that whole mythology. So all this stuff's being manufactured. But it's, uh, it's now utterly exposed. I said to you the other day, um, it looked as though it was cracking in the 80s when um, people like Colin Patterson, the senior paleontologist at the British Museum, um, sponsored this exhibition about creation and evolution at the Natural History Museum and went over to America with a question, is there anything true about evolution? Because he didn't think there was. And he wrote this, the main... Much to be there, I don't know. Um, and there was a big conference in Chicago the year before, 1980, and uh, they, they still kind of believed in microevolution. Things can develop. It's not really that either. Uh, but they rejected the idea that could lead to macroevolution. So they rejected the idea of macroevolution. These were the leading evolutionists in the world. Now, a campaign led by high priests like Dawkins has served to actually completely suppress all the stuff that was coming out in the 80s and produce a generation and a half of believers again in the lie. And it's enforced now much more in education and so on. But the irony is, is that the actual things have moved on so much in genetic studies that not only, I mean, it's logically impossible I mean, for, for new information to come by chance because information is, is thinking in a language in the code. So you have to have a mind behind it. I mean, logically, that's always been obvious to anyone who's prepared to face up to reality. But now it's actually proven to be the case. But it's still be taught. Your children will still hear it. It'll still, you'll still have programs on the TV because, because it's the perpetuation of the lie. But there will be small groups of people, and I trust that we are such a group, who will actually be prepared to take God at his word, to take truth seriously, and will pray for God to move. We've been here 33 years, I have, and we've laid the foundations of right thinking of godly thinking, biblical thinking. A lot of people have left as we've done it because they haven't wanted to think that way. When a lot of people left from 1996 to 1999, the worst, that was the worst time in the church. That was the time when we had that prophecy 
from Chris Lane that God was really going to bring great blessing here. And I knew I had to rebuild. Remember what I did? I went through the five points of Calvinism. I went through the 13 articles. I went through our doctrinal basis. And we knew that's one side of it. The other side was seeking the Holy Spirit. But it's no good seeking the Holy Spirit if you're not prepared to have uh, the ridicule of believing the Bible. So most evangelicals, alas, they want to try and hold the two together. So they hold what they call science, which is not science, they just deceive, and, and, and apply it to Genesis. Whereas the Bible is quite clear, God completed his creation as he completed his redemption. Now we stand for that. And it's actually the only thing that makes scientific sense. So we don't need to be apologetic about it. We can actually say, look, whatever you believe, you've got no basis for. But we need to do it very nicely, very politely, very kindly, and very gently. Because people really do believe the stuff that they hold to. This Professor Sanford I'm mentioning in his book, Genetic Entry, get hold of it. He said for years he believed what he called the primary axiom. That the, the evolution thing was right. <laughs> to see completely how misguided he thinks. Had to see. Now, friends, we are at a critical point. We could see, not simply this town, but this nation turned back. If we will take what God has done for us seriously and believe it and act on it and pray for it, we are at that point. And he's looking at us, saying, Letchworth Baptist Church, are you going to take me seriously? Will you take my, this psalm seriously? Will you believe me? Or is this something in the Bible, nice to read, comforting, but then I'll get on with my life? Well, if you take that line, no doubt we'll all get to heaven. And then what will God say to us? You missed the not only the opportunity, but the fact that I called you to be a light, not simply to letters, but to Great Britain. Your choice. I know what my choice is. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter. And our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Lord, don't let us, any of us, get away with compromising or fudging or walking away. But may we follow Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and your word and your purposes. In Jesus' name.
Amen.